Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Good? Yes, sir. I know who I am. Did IQ just drop shot? I could have been. I have a plan. I like this shit. You know what's off, bro? It is your destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week we have two formidable guests that are coming back to talk with us about Blade Runner 2049. Say hello to Jason Beaulieu and Carrie Lynn. Hey, hey everybody. Jason, we're formidable. That's great. Yes, formidable. Yes, I love you guys. It's always fun to have you guys on the show with us. Yeah, it's always... so good to have them back. Yeah. And together. And it's it's kind of like a, a real table talk reunion. I mean, we yeah, were totally, we're yeah. Wesley, oh, yeah, we're getting straight back. <laughs> it is, yeah, no. And we had to keep our promise. Like, we, we were talking about, I think it was on the Alien Cup episode that we were going to bring Carrie back and here she is <laughs> and uh, we were talking with Jason this week as well and I, I really wanted to uh, get his input on that because he's a big fan of the original yeah. film and yep. I knew that he was going to like this one anyway well, let's face it we, we're yeah, all... we, 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 we just wheel out Jason whenever whenever he's available <laughs> he's, a, he's our he's our go-to <laughs> guest or just whenever <laughs> so Blade Runner 2049 uh, is about a Blade Runner that discovers a secret that leads him to finding something about himself, but also leads him to Rick Deckard, who's been missing for a long time. The film is directed by Homeboy Denis Villeneuve, and it stars Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, Carla Uni, Robin Wright, Anna Diarmas, Dave Bautista, and Sylvia Hooks, and uh, a blind Jared Leto. So I wanted to just preface to you guys, if you guys are expecting a regular episode of Atlantic SC... This is not the one. This one's going to be a yeah. roundtable discussion with myself, Jason, Kerry, and Lee. Yeah, it just lets us lets us put it all out there because it's all fresh in the head. Agreed. All right, so let's get into this. Jason, what did you think of Blade Runner 2049? All right, well, I saw it first in IMAX, and uh, I have to say that it is the format to see it in. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. I really, really liked the movie. It blew me away visually. I would say that the story, the story is okay. It's it's not necessarily predictable, but it's not it's not groundbreaking, if you will. But I really, really, really liked the visuals. And then I saw it another time. I saw it last night actually on a regular screen in 3D, and it wasn't the same experience to be honest. But I I much preferred the IMAX uh, version. You know, the regular format was in 3D. But the screen was darker, and the movie is already dark enough (laughs) in all the senses of the word. And then, but to see, I I would strongly recommend seeing it in IMAX. And I was really excited, and it it delivered. For me, it delivered. I I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. Carrie. Yeah, I would uh, would totally agree. The movie definitely delivered for me. I tried not to... um you know, fabricate in my mind what kind of story points I wanted it to cover because that never turns out well. But, um, but I definitely had uh, ideas in my mind of artistically what I hoped the movie was going to try to achieve. And I think it totally did that for me. Um, It was very much about building mood uh, through um, pacing, through the visuals, obviously, and and just some other, well, music, very important. Uh, For me, I think atmosphere and mood is really the central character of uh, the Blade Mm. Runner movies. And it totally delivered on that point. And I I think when other people 
come away disappointed listening to I don't think too many people are but you do hear people talk about it being boring or I feel like they're just missing the point of what the movie was supposed to be about so yeah so I I was very happy with it I thought it it was artistically beautiful I wasn't bored for a moment of the movie it gave me a lot to think about and process as I was watching it so yeah I was very happy excellent Lee let's go into you sir (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean I think probably what we all did before this was was delve into the original Blade Runner for another run before we watched this uh, this new yep. feature. I guess <laughs> uh, some some of us here harbor a little more adoration for it than others. I, for one, I thought it was it's a really good and influential aesthetic movie with a lot of different thematic and theological ideas crammed in so that people can always get lost and delve into it and it kind of works for that because it's always something it's a debate movie you know it's it's a film designed for discussion uh even if sometimes those discussions probably don't go anywhere 2049 is like a different film entirely because it is a discussion film it is something that you will like to talk about but it's one made with very straightforward intention in comparison to 20 uh, to the original it's it's a film that definitely has an idea of what it's trying to say more than just a lot of ideas trying to say all at the same time it's less about a world building and more about a, a character and a story and you know I, I appreciate the values of both but i'm always more for a yeah, character story, something with uh, a little more to chew in. I, I like I like having somebody to to center it around and to, and to read into that. Twenty forty nine. It just had a lot of great aspects. That hopefully, we'll be able to dive into. But it's very much the 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 film nerve. I'm gonna fuck up that pronunciation again. <laughs> it's very much Villeneuve. 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 <laughs> there you go. Wow, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Sweet. It's pretty good. Uh, yeah, it's it's got his like tra- trademark slow-paced, character-driven story with huge thematic ideas driving it, and it's very much to me a great continuation of what he started to piece together with Arrival last time around, and it was I just like a that, yeah. very satisfying film that absolutely drew me into its world and let me think about what it was trying to say and give me enough undefined images that you could really make of it what you wanted. And that's that's the kind of film that I love to watch. And it's very much a pattern that has been in the last four films we've done on this show. Uh, so it, uh, what a relief that is, going into something blind and coming out and going, well, this, this turned out to be right up my alley. Yeah, I have to agree with everything that you guys have been saying. I really, really enjoyed the film. I'll admit to nodding off about at the hour and 15 minute mark, but I was really <laughs> tired that day. And I remember uh, Ali, I brought my 10 year old daughter uh, who's sitting next to me and she just kind of gave me a poke because I was holding on to the M&Ms. And <laughs> it kind of woke me up a little bit and it was kind of funny. But I feel Villeneuve really did a great job. I'm, I I love the fact that he takes his time. Yeah. Totally. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You were pointing out how slow it is. And it's great because some of these shots just linger. And I think he does that on purpose in order for those images to stay imprinted in our Absolutely. brain. Definitely. Yeah. To, to a bad world building, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> he he yeah. has said that. Well, he has it, come out to say that he would he created the long shots on purpose to kind of like emulate what the first movie was doing. He, he's actually come out and said that. Makes sense. That's great. Because it, it could have easily gone the other way. I mean, uh, if you look at, uh, I don't know, I, well, I, I don't have any examples of any, you know, remakes or reboots or whatever the fuck that you want to call them now because I'm, I'm lost in the names. But I, I really feel like there are a lot of films out there that could take their time as opposed to just kind of getting into the, 
you know, the hyper cuts that people usually do. Villeneuve really takes his time. And I, I think that's great because I can still see a lot of what was going on in Blade Runner 2049 in my head right now. And it's a world as dystopian as it is. I find comfort in it because the images were at the same time as garbage as the place is. There is something attractive in what it is. And I think it's that aesthetic. it's a really good looking film. It's yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it hits close to home because it feels it doesn't feel that far away. I mean, we're all aware. I think that back in 82 compared to today, we're all aware of where the world is going. Right. If we don't take care of it. <laughs> Giant graveyard. <laughs> Pretty much, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're all quite fond of our graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what you like about it, uh, Jason. Maybe that's it's the, the homeliness of seeing the world you grew up in finally go to a point where you can see it represent the graveyard it has always been in your head well strangely enough i mean i was sitting there in the theater and i went to see it on imax as well that 16 percent more image is worth it i agree with jason <laughs> yes i got myself i don't know why but for some reason at one point i started thinking about uh, the valley of ashes and the great gatsby and i thought mm. that this was kind of one of those those weird retellings that you could actually have some gatsby-ness in it yeah. you know the idea that uh, you know gatsby is this chosen one or uh, you know and then k kind of thinks he is and and so oh, anyway i had a lot going on in my brain uh while i was watching the film i really liked it i really liked it i, I really want to go back to see it again i'm looking forward to just sitting down on my couch yeah. and putting yeah. it on because I feel like the imagery is something soothing. It's weird to say this, but it's one of those movies, like I was saying, it, it, you know, it helps you kind of contemplate so many different things. But at the same time, all the shots look like screensavers that you could put on <laughs> in a meditative environment. Yeah. Where I was just kind of like feeling relaxed just watching all of it, no matter how much garbage was on screen. I have a big, dark cyberscape yeah. landscape as my desktop right now. <laughs> there you what go. We find comfort in. Go. Other people have images of like sunny beaches. Nope. And you've got like dystopian garbage urban. land. Yeah. I uh, I really enjoyed the uh, like the first shots where he's flying over like the solar panels and then he yeah. flies into like the environmental area Actually, or whatever. That like was the, a great harvestry. contrast. Yeah. And 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 it felt like I was in an airplane looking down when you're about to land yeah. and you oh, see the landscape. That's how it felt to me. So it felt very real. So right. Blade, Blade Runner 2049 is an airplane window film. Yeah, <laughs> it's an airplane window film. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? Your police. Plan on taking me here. I would much prefer that to the alternative. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. You're a cop. I had your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks, scrambled the records, 
We were being hunted. By who? They know you're here. You do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Bring it to me. breaks the world. We have to go. I'm coming with you. Where is he? The future of the species is finally unearthed. So leading off the airplane window thing, Jason, how about you take us through what, you know, what, what really caught your attention throughout the film? Okay, well, um, I guess I could start out with uh, why I, I like Blade Runner so much. And uh, it was because of, uh, in my college years, I had a project where I had to talk about a post-1950s movie that has had an impact on the cinematic world. You know, it was one of those kind of generic mm. uh, questions where you had to research a movie. And I just went, oh, I'm going to go, you know, edgy, and I'm going to go with Blade Runner. I've never seen this movie, <laughs> but I've, I've heard so much about it, so maybe I should sit down and watch it finally. And I did, and it blew me away. And, you know, but especially when you're like 17, 18 years old. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the sweet spot for Blade it's Runner. It's the sweet spot, exactly, exactly. It just stayed with me. It stayed with me for a long time. I'm not a cyberpunk fan uh, as much as Carrie is, but I would say that I like sci-fi in general, I like dystopias. I like things like that. And it just stayed with me. And I thought that when I when I became a teacher, I thought, well, I've got to integrate Philip K. Dick's stories into my, my curriculum and all that. So I'm teaching short stories by Philip K. Dick. So like right. a lot of the themes that are in the movie, like uh, simulacra, what's real? What's unreal? What is it to be human? What is it to like life in, in the future? What like this, this bleak idea of what to expect of, of our future? All of those themes have always stayed with me, and walking into Blade Runner 2049, I think that I, I didn't I didn't do too much research on it either, just to 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 be fresh, and that was a good thing because I uh -huh. really 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 enjoyed it. And what what did I catch on? Um, to be honest, I love the fact that they kept going with the technology that they had developed in the first movie. They went they went and uh, like there are no cell phones spoiler alert but there's like you know but there's they have these machines that could easily exist to, today and they kept going with that they didn't go like well we have cell phones now so yeah. deal with it they kept going with the world where cell phones didn't exist back in what is 2019 yeah that's right and then jump to 2049 and there are still no cell phones oddly there's a there's a form of video phone that's still there but i, I like the fact that they they just explore the technology they explored this, this idea of uh simulacra but in a different way like without using the internet uh what i have taught uh my students is uh, well i i, I go with I've, I've read a couple of his stories but what i do teach is uh I teach Beyond Lies the Wub, which is the story of a, um, a ship that picks up some cargo from uh, Mars, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And um, they pick up this creature, and this creature um, has a conscience. 
And the thing is, on, on the ship, there's been a spoilage, there's been some damage, and they've lost all their food. And the captain finds this creature that looks like a gigantic pig. So he thinks that, well, you know what? Uh, we don't have any food, so we might as well cook this thing. <laughs> but the creature has... <laughs> Yeah, the creature has a conscience, and he's like, uh, surely, Captain, you don't want to do that, right? So they have these con this conversation about, you know, uh, ethics, about, you know, cooking something that has a conscience. This sounds like Okja. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. And, it's, it's, and the students get it, and they enjoy it. And the thing is, the science fiction part of it, well, it's all science fiction, but the, 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 the hard science fiction is um, the fact that the, uh, the wolves' conscience at the very end of the story uh, travels into the captain's body hmm. like and so this is like a kind of being it's this 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 spirit or whatever that's going from one being to the next so we don't know its origins we don't know it's about you know seven pages long excellent little story and it talks about the quest to go home like the voyage home this idea of of and he talks about odysseus and he, so there's all this symbolism of the search for self. And the second story that I uh, teach is I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon, which is the story about a guy who's heading to a, a colony. It's a 10-year trip, so he's in stasis. And then what happens is there's a malfunction. He wakes up, his body is asleep, but his consciousness is is awake. And the computer goes, oh great, I can't, I can't put this, I, put, I can't put him back to sleep. <laughs> and the guy says, look, um, so I'm gonna be awake for 10 years? He's like, yep, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to, uh, I'm going to entertain you. You're going to ask, you're going to show me, you're going to ask me what you want to see and I'll try to, I'll entertain you for the next 10 years. So he constantly goes back to his childhood memories, but after a while they get all distorted because he has a lot of guilt. So every time he has these feelings of guilt, everything breaks down yeah. and the computer has to start over. <laughs> but um, when he finally gets off the ship, uh, he doesn't know what's real anymore. Hmm. Right, right. Huh. That's really that's, that's interesting that like yeah, most of Dex's work tends to focus on the human experience with throughout Absolutely. technology and science as yeah. a whole, you know, and that that yeah. that's interesting to see that more firmly reflected in this film. I mean, in twenty forty nine, the idea and also the original, the idea of memory and photos and and the right. past mm -hmm. is is really yeah, really yeah. present. And in I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon, his past is constantly distorted by his guilt. And then he decides, well, okay, let's not go in the past. Let's just pretend that you're on the planet. So he pretends he's on the planet and he still feels guilty because of his past. Everything constantly breaks down for 10 years. Oh, wow. There's just 10 years of this constant questioning and guilt. And so all of these themes are, are recurring and they, they, they're in Blade Runner. Yeah. Which is great, you yeah. know. And uh, that's what's so appealing to me. Maybe not the cyberpunk side, but the side of like this idea of simulacra. What it is to be human. What it, what is it like to love? Can we love a machine? Yep. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah um, I've I've done uh, a little bit of research into cyberpunk more generally before as well, and and uh, there's a number of reasons why Philip K. Dick fits very nicely into that genre. Um, cyberpunk is really um, to talking about that idea between the real and the unreal that's a central premise of cyberpunk is to question uh not only to to blur the line between real and artificial real being something that's tangible and people that are flesh for example and artificial being mm -hmm. something technologically created so like in um either a a robot human like a replicant or or 
just something existing in cyberspace as well. So cyberpunk likes to not only blur those lines, but also challenge the hierarchy. We always come with this assumption that real is better. And cyberpunk says, really? Is it always though? <laughs> and, yeah. And so like uh, Neuromancer by William Gibson is kind of the cornerstone cyberpunk genre. Although Philip K. Dick was writing before, but people tend to turn to William Gibson as kind of coalescing and defining the genre or the subgenre for real, yeah. so to speak. Mm -hmm. But um, so if we look at Case, the main character, the um, what's he called? Um, cyber cowboy. He, he's always jacking in to the... Um, uh, to cyberspace we get a lot of terms that we now use about computers from this novel in fact which probably a lot of science fiction fans will know that but uh, so case in the novel explicitly disdains what he calls meat and that is the physical body and he prefers the world of cyberspace and he's not the only one to feel that way um, and so bodies are kind of a means to an end. They, they're not shown a lot of respect. They're augmented, mutilated at, oftentimes through these augmentations. Um, and that's, you know, putting hardware into your body or uh, swapping out organs as you use them up, this kind of stuff. It's all in service to the higher order experience, um, which is enabled by technology. So there's this flipping of values. Um, but also, nice. it's, it's really important to understand the, the uh, driving values of cyberpunk have to do with, um, I would term it an, an emotional exploration of late capitalism. And so that's um, late capitalism being um, our context, which is really um, preoccupied with consumerism and commodities. And so right. cyberpunk is kind of trying to expose this to us. It's critiquing that. Uh, value system and it's also um, exploring how people emotionally respond in this context of total consumerism so that's mm. why we'll see um, uh, cyberpunk landscapes are always or usually dominated by urban landscapes uh, they're super crowded full of people they're um, very busy so it's very hyperactive which are all elements associated with our late capitalist uh, environment and then there's tons of evidence of consumerism and commodities everywhere which is why you see all the brand names lit up in, yeah, in lights yeah. you know that's all going towards Absolutely. those those uh, values of cyberpunk and that's it's care you, one should be careful to notice though it's not a celebration of capitalism yeah. no, it right no, it, it is meant as no, a critique and so um Absolutely. yeah uh, but yeah to go back to this emotional element that's really really important in cyberpunk that um we get this emphasis on mood all the time this is why there's always or very often i should say rain it's not only crowded nighttime cities but nighttime and in the rain it's it's all about mood yeah. right it's usually an angsty mm. mood as well it kind of appeals <laughs> to the uh iso well the isolated that's angsty where, that's where the teenager man. that's where the teenage mindset yeah latches on man i'm in an angsty mood if only there was a world that portrayed that from start to finish. Right. And, and so a lot of these early um, pioneers of cyberpunk are men. So we shouldn't blame them for having a masculine perspective on this angsty kind of um, emotional response to the world. 
So, uh, and also I should say too, when, because of this masculine perspective, but also just exploring the commodification, um, love and sex are commodified part and parcel, because if we're going to truly explore emotions and commodity, we have to have love and sex being commodified in those stories and exploring how those, how those play out. Right. So, so I would want to put these movies in that broader context of, of cyberpunk there. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting because a lot of the imagery I picked up in the film, it kind of, it plays into the the, the the idea that this is the, the commodification and the things that we have lost in the world, but you can read it in so many ways that you basically, that's why I think this is a discussionable film, mm-hmm. you know, because everything has a double meaning or a triple meaning. Absolutely. Like, for example, the big broad word that I, like, put over the film when I walked away from it was that it was a film dealing very much with identity, the struggle to identify yourself. And that's something that's interesting because a lot of the imagery in that struggle is balanced with uh, what's in the cyberpunk general roster, the, the wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because if we if we take about the, the like, capitalist reading for example and thinking about this whole decay of emotional values or even share connection that's interesting because there's so much in the imagery that is about that and when it comes to to sexuality there's this idea of like these old sex symbols like elvis and prince and marilyn monroe or these they're on the holograms there are these statues of sexual congress outside the hotel vegas itself this whole breathing world this 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 foreground for pushing commodified emotional experiences on people is now in the wake it's in the dust of the world that kind of that sort of breeding point it's almost like ground zero of 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 the cyberpunk that kind of works in that genre really well yeah uh, but that's interesting because that's also not how I initially read that stuff. Uh, you know, when I when I was thinking about like the, those images, for example, with sexuality, I was thinking about how this story places K as someone who doesn't have his own identity. It's a, a very human story about this character who say they grew up in a world. Maybe even if you grow up in a, a small suburb, suburban area and you move to the city, or if you uh, you live with your parents your whole life. And then you move out and you have to start trying to make your own identity for yourself. That's essentially, if we, you know, if we reach a little, that's exactly, that's essentially where K is coming from. Uh, this experience of somebody who is uh, a fish out of water, yeah. you know, and it's interesting then to see how this person has to piece their identity together because they're basically, they have nothing going on. He's ordered to just do his job and nothing else. And, and as the plot unravels and he starts seeing himself as this special character it's because he starts seeing himself as an individual and that's because he's gathering ideas about his identity and it's it's amazing to see the world enriched with that imagery because it feels like it's very much set in Kay's brain uh like the idea is like these old sex symbols uh, statue of sexual congress the loneliness with him and the joy hologram in the street these ideas that this is what is going on in the mind, he's clinging to ideas that are supposed to define humanity. Sexuality is part of that, but there's also ideas like gender. I mean, Case, the, the, the male clone of a of a female woman, you know, who's lived her whole life. She's this child, this replicant child who's been adopted by humanity uh, as such. Kay is the male clone of that. His gender is technically fluid. So in this world, he doesn't actually have a position there. And in the plot, it doesn't, it comments on how he's an impossibility. And yet he exists. So there's this idea that identity is both informed by these principles and at the same time is other to them, you know, that that they exist around you, but also inform you that these things are in your head and they are important, but they aren't also 
what straight up defines you. You are not your gender. You are not, you know, your sexuality preference. And it's interesting that there's so much connection through the film as well, because these are things that also define us. If you think about his love with Joy, that's a very real relationship, despite her being a hologram. That's a that's a solid connection between those two. He genuinely grieves her death to the point where, by the end of the film, he's a lost cause, you know, and he accepts his death willingly by the end because he's lost his love, you know? At, at least that's one way of interpreting it. Uh, uh, there's a million others, and that's what that's the asterisk we have to add on to everything everybody says. Yes, yes, the asterisk <laughs> uh, is the important part. There's his sort of hate-revenge story with the character of love. I mean, that's another connection that doesn't define him but drives him. His memory shared with Anna another connection they have a shared past but at the same time he has to live on with that so memories are a part of our identity and yet they aren't our whole identity and even masculinity or paternity with Rick you know he's he's potentially the son or stepson of a person he's also has this idol of masculinity that is he's supposed to potentially live up to and he doesn't really you know he doesn't fit into those brackets you know he doesn't fit one exact bill and that's interesting to me because it, it comments very loudly on what humanity is it's a collection you know we are a, a series of different influences and we are yes broadly identified under these things but we are not specifically one or the other they just all exist in this mind frame and i i love that about the i, I love that it could be read in two different ways it could be the cyberpunk how all these things exist and that they're this claim for uh, an old way of life or these human values and, a, and an exploration of where they exist in a cyberpunk world or they're this idea of identity within this one character, and it kind of works both ways, and that's that's great to me. I love open interpretive work. That's fun and, and enjoyable to read. I, want, I liked what Lee was saying with regards to these things happening in Kay's mind and how it plays on memory, because the mind and the memory itself are things that are, are toyed with, especially when it comes to the Kay character and that new Voint Kampf test that they yeah. have, you know, so that post traumatic. You told me just before the show that it was the post traumatic baseline test. Exactly. That's what they they do now, and it's kind of fun because when you look at it, it it is a clear evolution of of the how computer in two thousand one a space odyssey. There's no red light in it, but it's a more efficient yeah. one, and it's there. It's a machine designed to put bioengineered people like the the replicants back in their place and i thought that was a really clever subversion you know the efficiency with which that that post-traumatic baseline test is it, it seems to be the exact opposite of what it was in the original blade runner and the original blade runner it was made to find out whether or not people were replicants but in this one it's actually made to enforce the fact that they're replicants you know, yeah. and so it's it's basically showing Kay, you're still a replicant, okay? And it's telling him, you're, it's, it's like a washing cleans, basically a reset button. I wrote down in my notes that it was like a tightening of the screws, essentially, <laughs> you know? He goes out into this world that's filled with, well, we'll call it sin for lack of a better word, but, you know, the, we were talking about over-sexualization and cyberpunk and all that stuff right now, you know? And it's basically that he goes out into the world innocent and then he comes back full of sin and then that machine washes him clean and says, you're not supposed, that's all human shit that they deal with, but you're not a human, so we're washing it clean. So it felt like these were confessionals 
in the church where he actually goes into that, yeah. confesses his sin to this machine, and then after that he can go back out and operate normally. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of a fun thing, you know, this idea of washing away the sins and the fact that there's so much fucking water in the movie. I don't know if oh, did yeah. you guys pick up on, like, there's an overabundance of water. If I could, uh, if I could quote Thomas King, Canadian, Canadian and American, uh, uh, Native American artist, he, uh, in one of his books, um, he says, there's a lot of water around here. It must be symbolic of something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And so, I mean, what a quote! I love it. That's a, it's fantastic. That's yeah, exactly. It's brilliant. Uh, and I mean, it is symbolic. Uh, if you look, if you take it like as as literature, most of the time, you know, water is this this it has a dual meaning. It's either freedom or death. And I find it sometimes it's really other cool too, that. But yes, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, so the, you had Kate Chopin's book, *The Awakening*, where the the, her, the main character actually walks out into the ocean, which is a liberation. It's it's a freedom from everything that's been going on. It's basically her claiming her femininity, and that's that's you know, if she can't live in a world where she can be herself, so she'll walk out into the ocean and she drown herself. She awakens to her identity and all that and realization that she ne- needs to go. Yeah, yeah. believe right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And I mean, I thought it was kind of fun to see Neander Wallace kind of just yeah. surrounded by water. This idea that he's the one who, who gives birth to these replicants and he acts as a God slash John the Baptist type guy where he's actually going to be in control of what's actually been going on. So he welcomes them into the world surrounded by water. I thought that was Water cool. is also um, symbolic of the subconscious too, hey? If you want to go down a Freudian kind yeah, of path. Definitely. And I mean, look at look at his room. The yeah, room that that's he what and I was Decker thinking of. Yeah. The film. It's like a dream you know, room. It's just this big, giant brain. Exactly. It's big, giant brain where like Deckard might actually, you might actually say that this is happening yeah. in his mind and that Neander doesn't really exist in this state. And that's why Rachel shows up as this ghost-like image. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of cool. Even Wallace's name, you know, when we're talking about in the mind or in memory, Wallace, if you separate it, if you want to, and this is me really <laughs> reaching, but it could actually break down to wall us, you know, give us guidance, you know, build a wall right, okay. around us in the sense. Well, Robin Wright mentions this idea of the wall. Oh, yeah. There right. you go. You know, the wall is there. And so I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, to have that that giant emphasis on the mind, the memory and all that. So one thing that I forgot to mention in all this was when we're talking about the mind and we're talking about memory, I sat down with Jason and Carrie last week to rewatch Blade Runner and I yeah. got Allie, my youngest daughter, to watch the film with us to see if she would actually be interested in coming to see 2049. She really liked the original film and she picked up on something that I hadn't picked up on before and it was a really sweet moment that this 10-year-old girl you know, she she's trying to piece this thing together. She tell, told me what the film was about. I was like, I, I asked her, okay, Allie, what was the first movie about? She says it's about four replicants that uh, want to find who made them because they want to be in control of their lives. And I was like, that's fucking really hell. Amazing. That is great. And she's, <laughs> I was like, wow, that's really a deep sense. thought for Exactly. And I, then it never dawned on me that the first movie was about control. And then I kind of tried to apply what Ali had said to this new movie and the idea that, you know, with that new Voigt comp test, you know, the post-traumatic baseline test, it is about enforcing control, but it's no longer humans that are enforcing control. It's actually machines enforcing control on, well, other so-called machines. I won't call replicants like flat-out machines, but they're biologically yeah. engineered. And, you know, there is a hint that there is a machine-like quality to them. But it, it goes to show just how far we're willing to push technology to get rid of doing shit. <laughs> <laughs> where we actually have... Well, there you know, again, there's the question are, we, of we, maybe real isn't best. 
you know? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting yeah. because when I think of that that image of a, a machine controlling other artificial life and, and dictating which which is the baseline for how much they experience in life. I think of, like, slavery, which is another kind of control, you know? And that's yeah, what and that's the first, the first film talks about too, a lot. Right? And how they work that into this one is that essentially all replicants have to be at a certain level of subjugation to fit in. And then the film is opening the can of worms that is racism. And even modern racism the yes. kind of one where every yes. with this understanding yeah. of and we've seen it a lot in in, in on, on on twitter and on and in the in the wake of the the president trump election that uh there's there's this underlying right that white people keep forcing over black people that you know we are giving you yeah. your freedom right that shit yeah is in here and it's and the idea that the key to which is being held by a, a machine and, and if we see if we take that along and make that like by another race that they are they're basically straw manning or scapegoating other races as control for each race that isn't white that's you know that's pretty yeah. much kind of what I mean I think about I watched the film Detroit this year and I think about how yeah. they had the black police officer take all the fault for the white misgivings of that scenario it wasn't even a police officer he was a security guard down the street who came to check out what was happening in the hotel block at the Hotel Algier. And he was the one who got basically sentenced with the crimes committed rather than these white police officers who killed these people. That way in which society has adopted, for example, an American society has adopted the black culture and has put them into a baseline that they can be police officers or they can look after people. But the moment they step out of bounds, it's all taken away by white people. That that echo in yeah. Blade Runner twenty forty nine is what is so effective about the world it creates because it reflects so easily and so readily on the world we live in, and that is essentially the the makings of good dystopia, right? Yeah. What what Lee's bringing up right now makes me think that Blade Runner twenty forty nine doesn't even seem to be that much of a sequel to the original Blade Runner, but an actual uh, manifestation of what. Charlie Chaplin was talking to us about in modern time, where Kay is actually one of those cogs in the yeah. wheel, the same way as like Charlie Chaplin becomes one of those cogs in the wheel. And you know, the, the relationship with Eddie has with the homeless girl is also the same relationship that he has with Joy. And it, it's all this want to kind of be f- not necessarily fearful of technology, but if you look at how the themes in Blade Runner 2049 are pushed, and there is a clear correlation between those two avenues i think that that would be something worth exploring Absolutely. because chaplin was basically telling us careful what you wish for because you're gonna be in over your head and if we look at how yeah. k is portrayed throughout the entire film he is in way over mm. his head there are things beyond and above him that are like you know the machinations of what's going on are very much out of his control the entire time absolutely i just want to add to what lee was saying about robin wright's character i mean she's the police she's the chief of police but she's a woman which is which is i guess progress in a way but in on the other hand she's a white woman in a position of authority who actually tells Kay, tell me about a memory tell me about a memory and he says well it doesn't really make sense because they're not mine they're fake well do i have to make it an order so right there just yeah you're right she's been kind of set up as well you know for the for the replicants that essentially each gender and and race that 
doesn't fit the white male bill is immediately propped up as a scapegoat for all the problems right. of the replicants when really it's it's Wallace who's pulling everything behind this you know behind the scenes right. he's the real antagonist of this who and he's almost entirely invisible throughout the narrative and uh, what's interesting also I think in what we've been saying about these sort of straw men and I think what Jason was saying about control and this idea that this character K, he kind of he's new, he's innocent, he's new to the world, and he's totally separate. Is what's interesting is that, especially about the the baseline test and how it manipulates people. The the actual words in the baseline test are taken from the Nabokov book Pale Fire, uh, which is great because it leads to a very it's uh, I guess simplistic way of reading the film, uh, the story in itself, but also an interesting one that ties in with why the narrative is shaped like it is, uh, and that's because Pale Fire. Is this great book about a character who essentially isn't the star of his own book. And that's funny because also with regards to The Great Gatsby, that's very much the case as well with regards to Nick, who mm-hmm. is the narrator, but very much more or less removed from the actual events of the story. A fifth wheel. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's, it's yeah, very much yeah. that. But in the same way, Palefire more specifically discusses control and and actually how much of it we have after death. So the, the, the premise of the book, in case anybody doesn't know, is that it's essentially made up of three parts and can be read in any order. A foreword, a poem, and a set of annotations. The actual poem itself is the main feature. It's Pale Fire. And that is written by a character called John Shade. Uh, it's 999 lines long. And it's yeah. it's essentially this interpretation of Shade's concept of death and and his actual general career trying to understand and get past death. The actual book itself is in the meta-narrative. The poem is bought out from Shade's widow by a neighbor who is a big fan of him called Charles Kinboat. And Kinboat himself was teaching in the school that Shade was also teaching in. And then by the end of the, the book, we get the annotations of the notes. It's very much Kinboat. actually talking about his own story and how he had tried to relay this to Shade and how he reads everything that Shade has written and reinterprets it to be about himself. Hmm. So in the place right. where he has imagery like Shade would be talking about his fights with death. Kinboat. would be talking about his story, about how he may or may not be the escaped king of a fictional country called Sembla. Hmm. Uh, it's it's a fascinating book, but the actual structure that's dro- like name dropped in the in the story, both by a quote and by uh, Joy picking up the book at one point, uh, is 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 really interesting because it actually has a lot to do with what Kay's role in the story is. I love this. Uh, yeah. If you talk about yeah. the the actual monologue itself, very quick quote. It's a system of cells interlinked within cells, interlinked within cells, interlinked within one stem, and dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. So context of the novel is that at this point, Shade is is describing a a debilitating heart attack he endures, and the tall white fountain is an image he sees in the afterlife before shortly returning to, to life, before he gets resuscitated. And he later pursues that idea. He almost finds a woman who, in a magazine, has been printed saying that she saw a similar fountain when he meets her. She actually happens to be just a crazy fan of his. And there was a misprint in the magazine where they had said fountain instead of mountain. But it actually, at the end, he comes to a point where he finds 
hope for the interlock and interrelated connection between these things, even if they don't always one-to-one -one correlate with each other. Here we can see that this machine is testing K with his knowledge as he automatically re recalls the information, but we can suggest that this is a me message on purpose that somehow he is connected to, say, the unicorn, which is also an image that's brought up in Pale Fire by Shade. Interestingly enough, when it comes to the structure of the film, in this story, while Kay thinks he's the special one and then goes away from realizing that he's just a part in the cogs, as Jason was saying, and it's something I said in my review of the film, it's because it's that exact interpretation. He, in this case, plays the role of Kinboat, this narrator of the events that he isn't technically a part of and is forcing his own narrative on top of rather than the actual ongoing narrative of Blade Runner. And that's interesting because it also relates to how this film was made because Villeneuve is essentially doing the exact same thing. This isn't his story. The original story, the one started by Blade Runner, is the real story. And he's dancing around it with his own creations, telling a different story around the original work as if it's about that story. But also by the end, acknowledging that this can be left as is, you know, this isn't technically part of the narrative. And it's also not a trustworthy interpretation of the original intentions. So we have to sort of see that that acknowledgement of Pale Fire is in fact a sort of way to say that the, pe the hands involved in this aren't technically the ones that we should be trusting, that they aren't the same, and that this is a narrative removed from a narrative. And we kind of get another note of that with the fact that Kay's given name in the end is Joe. Because to me, that was Joe Schmo. <laughs> Yeah, that was, totally. He's just some oh, guy. Yeah. He's just a dude. Oh, yeah. He's just yeah. in here. And while there is a lot in the world to say a lot about K, there's nothing really to do, especially with the original work Blade Runner. And while it is very flattering and very complimentary to the original work, it's technically not the same coming from a different horse's mouth. Yeah, <laughs> K is intentionally blank. That's it. I, that's really cool. I'm glad that you guys got that too, because I got yeah. that too as well. Because I was pointing out, like, when I was watching the film, I was sitting there and, and at one point during the movie, I got really disappointed because I was like, what the fuck? Is this going to be another one of those chosen one movies? Yeah. Right. Where there's this yeah. white guy that's going to be walking around and we have to follow him and Villeneuve says no in the end he's like fuck that we're not going there and I thought it was really <laughs> it was fun because I feel like it played against my expectations yep. and I felt like he was putting me in my place where he was like how dare you think that white guy and I was like <laughs> sorry I felt I felt like he was pushing back and because if, if anything, if you look at Kay's character, and I like what Lee was saying there, he's actually like the horse. You know, he becomes that MacGuffin, that one misdirects that keeps the entire film together. Yeah, the right. film isn't about him. It's about what's around him. Yeah. And I thought that was a really clever I never way believed of doing he it. was the chosen one. I never believed that. <laughs> I went with it like, okay, he thinks he's the chosen one. But if this movie is going to be good, if this is going to be a good movie, then they're not going to go that path. And they did it. And I was yeah. really happy that they did it's, it. Because it's so obvious that the, the is, memory yeah. isn't going to be yeah. his, yeah. right? That's, yeah. that's uh -huh. a big breadcrumb that's laid at the beginning. But maybe it's because I was too invested in the film and I was fooled. I was really, really fooled. Uh, I love the fact that Joy is the one that like baptizes him. Joe. She's the one who gives him a name. He's not yeah. too sure about it. At first, he's resisting. And at the same time, christens I him. Feel... She christens him. She doesn't There you go. That... Let's not get our water imagery. Sorry about that. Exactly. You're absolutely right. It's christens him Joe, you know, and I, like Joe Schmo is another one. But at the same time, I thought, thought that it was really cool that she would actually be uh, giving him her name, you know, but as a, a male version of it. She, her ah, joy. Yeah. That's quite you know, good. It got me thinking. I was like, I before E except after C. And it was kind of <laughs> funny because she she puts herself in front of him, so Joy before Joe, but at the same time, if we look at Joe, or 
our K being a constant K, you know, then you bring Coulomb's theory of the constant K, this electrostatic thing that is one <laughs> constant. And I thought that was really interesting because he is constant throughout the movie. But when you see uh, him by the machine that actually enables her to become wireless, she can't be constant. You know, yeah. and so I thought that was a really interesting dynamic between those two characters where she is christening him Joe, but she's actually putting the I before E. So you have this woman in front of the man <laughs> at one point as well, just in the names of the characters. But that's reaching again. That's me reaching in a different place. Uh, but the article that we were, we're going to talk about is is um, essentially saying that how female characters are portrayed poorly uh, in the film. And I, I wanted Carrie to chime in on this because she's my go-to expert on, you know, the role of women in film literature and whatnot. And so I wanted to bring in my experts so that we don't look stupid talking about this stuff. <laughs> well, so. expert might be overstating a little bit, but I do, I do seem to have a little more background and understanding than the author of this article. I mean, in a lot of ways, what she says isn't wrong. She does a pretty simplistic, uh, I would call it a feminist scoring of the female characters in this movie and what she says about the fact that they're they're artificial women you know we've got the one that is literally a machine or a hologram engineered for sexual satisfaction and feminists hate that and point to women's roles over uh history and how these kinds of figures show up in science fiction throughout the history of science fiction all that is mm -hmm. true however yeah. um i and in the rest of the what uh melissa k says throughout her article as well it's not wrong. It's just really lacking context for one thing and a pretty simplistic understanding of what's going on in the movie. She says she's cyberpunk obsessed, but it seems as though she doesn't really have much of a grasp of what cyberpunk is all about. So specifically, when she talks about the thematically complex nature that she likes in the original, she seems to really only be judging the themes on the basis of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Mm. Um and and that's fine but i but my and it's true that there is no clear good guy or bad guy in the first movie i don't think there really is in the second movie either but i think again that's kind of missing the point because cyberpunk is really about ambiguity and about there being um everybody has goals and sometimes those goals conflict but uh determining who whose goals are better is really not even part of the agenda so in terms of of scoring the women in terms of their um you know how they rate as feminist figures which of course they're not the movie fails the bechtel test i get that but we have to go back to the context of cyberpunk, just like I said earlier, that you wouldn't want to judge the uh, all the placement of the logos in uh, a cyberpunk setting as being a celebration of consumerism. That would be yeah, a misunderstanding like, makes sense. To, to read <laughs> these female characters as being some kind of bolstering of women as sex objects is, is a similar kind of misunderstanding. So I think it, it really centers around the question of um, this debate between what's real and what's not real. And so I wanted to contrast uh, Joy with Lieutenant Joshi. Um, Joshi, I, I keep wanting to pronounce it like Yoshi, like uh, yeah, like yeah, absolutely. The video That's game, what I thought right? it was like. <laughs> okay, all right. So, so Robin Wright, anyways, um, and I love her always in everything she yeah. does. Mm. So there's the scene where where she demands that he gives her the memory, right? And she's having a drink in his apartment. So there's a little bit of sexual aggression on her part as well, which is part of her role, I think. Not the role in the movie, but part of her role as the uh, dominating um, figure for her status. Yeah, she she absolutely. controls him, so there's a sexual aggression there as well. She tries to hit on him, 
Um, it's pretty subtle, but there's one line that she suggests yep. that that uh, you know, she's opening the door to if he wants to fuck, basically. And right, he okay. plays it all with blank face, like he always does throughout <laughs> the whole movie. Like he's, and you realize, like he really does have emotions and emotional responses and thoughts going on behind that blank face. But the blank face is what he presents to the world. So yeah, he just right. pretends to miss it. She picks up the hint that he's not into it, and she leaves. So. My point being that she, even though she's the real human, she fails to make the emotional connection with him, right? Um, And so I would argue that she sort of fails in emotional competence, even though she's the human, right? And Joy is not real, but um, she succeeds at emotional competence throughout the movie. Um, And Uh I think the movie does a really careful and meticulous job of, of developing her character. For one thing I would point out, in, uh, you know, an argument to Melissa Kay here, is that Joy is actually the most rounded, compassionate, and develops the most out of any character in the movie. And that, yeah, says, some, that says something a lot right there. Um, I think there's an intentional presentation of her as the robot woman because she starts talking about, oh, I'm trying to cook you this meal. And she's wearing this 1950s outfit. It's really on the nose. It's like the point is that <laughs> yeah, she exactly. is the wife, the mechanical wife that you bought from the catalog. She's here to satisfy your every need. In that scene, she even fluctuates between the wife in the kitchen and the hoary kind of sexy girlfriend look. Super intentional, right? That's not a mistake. Absolutely. Uh, so, and so the movie is setting us up to see her and be like, oh, that's who that character is. Like, just kind of sh- brush her right out of your mind. She's just going to play that role. And then, of course, she ends up being a whole lot more. She ends up, their relationship is really the um, the truest on screen circumstance of love that we see. She even sacrifices herself for him in the end. She's quite mm-hmm. touching. I, I really liked her, actually. Yeah, I liked her, And too. there's there's a fantastic scene with uh, the prostitute that comes over, and they do this interesting overlap. And it reminded me of a thing in uh, Neuromancer, to go back to William Gibson. He has something called meat puppets in, the, um, in that book. Yeesh. And the idea is that um, for women that want to make extra money, they have an ability to turn off their neurological receptor, something. They're able to turn their brain off. So their body is able to be in the hotel, making the money, acting as a prostitute, but they personally never experience it. They're not mentally there. And so they can get all the money from the prostitution, none of the trauma, and <laughs> uh, and it's called being a meat puppet. And it still looked sideways at, you know. And so I really, I saw this scene and I was like, oh, this is like the Blade Runner version of meat puppets in a sense, right? Nice. The prostitute wow. is there experiencing it, but it's it's this weird overlap between them. And the girl, the prostitute's name is Marriott, by the way, mm-hmm. which just sounds like Marionette to me so just pointing to that whole puppet thing but but it's an interest yeah yeah it's an interesting scene anyways and you're given the sense that the the hologram has real emotion because Mm -hmm. she they kind of make eye contact and she's like it's okay i wanted to do this for you it's it's nuanced i'm not trying to tell you how to read joy well and i want to underscore too here right that i don't think um Villeneuve or or any anybody involved with the the writing of the story is trying to come down on one side or the other of whether joy is better than reality or whether she's not because the point is ambiguity right like even mm-hmm. f- for all that joy is um 
she she becomes increasingly real. She get they get the emulator birthday pr- or anniversary present, and and she becomes right. more and more real throughout the movie, right? And then after she's gone, he's walking down the street, and he has the interaction with the the big virtual poster for Joy, yeah. who is a product, and his interaction with her reveals because she says, "Let me call you Joe," and it really undercuts everything about yeah. that relationship and puts it on an uneven footing again. And so, because the point is not the movie is not trying to teach you a lesson. It's not trying to tell you which is better. It's trying to just muddy all the waters, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but basically, what you're saying is that when you're talking about cyberpunk stuff, is that the ambiguity of it all is what's supposed to be at the forefront. Okay. It's not necessarily picking a side, but actually presenting these things as as uh, you were talking about earlier, a critique of consumerism. Uh, you're talking also a critique of, of how uh, feminism plays out in the in the film. Is that uh... well? I'm just I'm just trying to underscore the point that just because uh, the women are portrayed, uh, it, it's intentionally calling back to these uh, these uh, stereotypes. It's interacting with those ideas of the stereotypes in an intentional way. And because it's in Uh a dystopia, it's not trying to argue that this is a good position for women to be in. Yeah, there you go. I like that. I would say also that um, like, if if you were trying to to play some kind of feminist game where you flipped the gender script, which, by the way, is not the point of feminism, but were you to play play a little imagination game of what that would be like, do you want to see a movie where... Uh, the female characters are all the policemen and the adventurers, and then you have male prostitutes hanging around on corners for female consumption. I mean, that you could do that kind of for fun, but it would be a f- kind of ridiculous movie. That, it would be a that, parody. It would be a parody. There would wouldn't be. A there, there is. You can't flip the script in that way because there's no historical precedence for that kind of cultural situation in in our patriarchal history. Mm. You don't get to just step totally out of history. And uh, well, you can, but it's a different genre and it's a different mood. So my point is just that that yes, cyberpunk is is interacting with the stereotypes, but not in an unthinking way. It's in a critical way. So yeah, she seemed to miss that point. <laughs> Can I add something to, sure. uh, to yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the character of love. And uh, I noticed that uh, I remember Lee in your big picture reviews uh, review, you thought that the uh, the fight scene, the strangulation went on a little too long. That was an interesting yeah, take. Yeah, I, I, I did. I argued that uh, it serves a, a point, I guess, in that this is sort of K. There's this sort of underlying masculinity about him that he is still tied to that, that forces that. But I, I found that it went on a little long to the point where I thought the film was trying to provoke some sort of catharsis for his revenge. And specifically that this only happens to that one woman made me feel that this was just a little uncomfortable and maybe stretching too far these ideas to a point where I, you know, I didn't feel like it, it reflected well on really particularly anything. Uh, okay. But that was that was where I was going with that. I have a different take in the sense that because she is designed and programmed to serve and obey, she is therefore relentless in her mission to take out Kay and Deckard. Yeah, agree. So no matter, like, I think the strangulation was necessary, but I didn't see it as uh, male dominance. I think this comes back. I don't know if this can go in the uh, the podcast, but if if uh, the Jason's Doritos commercial, 
if women can't take the piss out of themselves, then how are we going to move forward? You know, like this idea of the. I like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, like. I think that. I think that I didn't. I didn't see it as dominance. I saw it as two robots going at it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's totally, there's totally that uh, discussion to have as well. I mean, especially if we manage to break down what the camera says with yeah. regards to the fact that they move up and down on each other. That sort of, they're not. While Kay ultimately takes the the sort of higher ground and keeps her submerged to the point where she eventually dies. It's not like straightforward. Like she, he just comes in and holds her down and that's that, you know, for a long time, he's the one being pressed under. So, I mean, and he's also of... rescuing a man in distress. Hey, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Man. That's another point. I mean, it's kind of funny because in the article also, uh, Melissa talks about how Staline is this damsel in distress locked away in a glass tower. No, she's not. What? I don't think so. either. first of all, no one's trying to rescue her. They're trying to prevent no. anything happening to exactly. her. But at the same time, if you look at the, 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 the damsel in distress, we could argue that Deckard is in this totally. case. He's because like... everyone one is oh, looking yeah. Yeah, he's the absolutely. one that's actually locked in a tower far away from the fucking city but even you know in that I mean? last yeah. scene he's chained because i that surprised me because he's the old action hero and here he is yeah. he's tied uh, to he's a chair to and i'm like why can't you get out of your chair and he just he sits there <laughs> like like he's like Meh. it was just yeah lipply wrestling with so a lame, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he's yeah. helpless he yeah helpless absolutely and old that's what it was exactly and i thought that was great <laughs> yeah. the way that they put that yeah yeah. And it, it's actually in the cinematography as well, as well and how Villeneuve shoots or De- Deacons sh- shoots a lot of these scenes. There's, a, there's an emphasis on K in the film that he is insignificant. And just look at look at the large imagery. You were talking about Joy, the projection, like, you know, that holographic image of how tall she is and how small he is constantly. Even when he's going through the wasteland and you have these large statues of women that are large and he's so tiny. He's walking through these giant landscapes. He's always tiny. And even the camera that he brings with him is always looking down on him you know k is this insignificant fucking thing the entire time you know and that's why i was telling you guys earlier that the story revolves around him but there's nothing he doesn't contribute much to the story yeah he just wants to ask you some questions (laughs) 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 yeah i mean and even with the idea that the whole princess and the tar thing realistically with that flip in who is the protagonist here it goes to anna and she becomes the yeah. chosen one that idea that that's the future that we want and we strive for that's what's going to take us out of this dystopia that this is all being placed in the hands and has been switched around to emphasize that this is not a man and the script goes way out of its way to say the man isn't the woman is that's a positive feminist oh, yeah. idea There's you know some that's positive that's... things feminist things in there for sure i just i i hate to always simplify things down yeah. to a bechdel scoring yeah, I mean, there's definitely yeah. more going on than just to, but it's always interesting when people bring up these kind of interpretations yeah. of films to sort yeah. of address them, acknowledge their places there. It also isn't. There's a lot more to a film than just one way to yeah. look at it. Uh, and we always have to bear that in mind. You're if absolutely I can, right. I want to make another comment about uh, Dr. Anna Staline as well, the dream maker who lives in the bubble there. Um, right. Just just to hammer home my, my point one last time, I promise, <laughs> about, uh, about crossing the line between real and unreal real she and she's the cumulative 
part of this movie, right? We end with her, we discover that she's kind of the center of the whole thing. And she also perfectly embodies this theme in that she, we learned that real memories are the best ones, right? And yeah. yet the best memories are made by her and she is not a real person. Because if she is the offspring of at least one replicant, we know that... Um, yeah, it's half, it's a combination. We don't, I, and I want to get back yeah. to that a little it's bit too. Unclear. We're not sure about Decker and I love the fact, I yeah. love the... F- That's cool. It's so yeah. important that they didn't just tell say, us. I was going to say, I love fuck. the fact that the movie like lets that question yes. fester yes. through the whole thing. Yeah, they don't fuck. even bring it up, <laughs> but they manage to leave it open. And I thought that was such an awesome they give some clues either way but they don't bother to yeah. even no no character mentions word of it and i think that's an awesome choice because that is, is what the movie is about absolutely wallace briefly discusses exactly maybe. it yeah. was all wallace it was all an inside job but then it might not be you know it was literally like <laughs> he asked he asked Deckard, hey so what's your feeling about that and confirm or deny yay yay or nay and he, he just doesn't say anything exactly <laughs> And it was funny. almost like just it was almost just a joke at the expense of people who wanted yeah, to maybe. <laughs> and I mean but uh, like Harry and I were talking about it after the movie the, for the pros and the cons he lives in a radioactive wasteland which does yeah. suggest yeah. Mm-hmm. that he's not human uh, but but again that's just us speculating from the outside we don't have any information from the movie to tell us well he's taking pills or who knows right well we the ship the, the ship's yeah, uh, the ship's old scanner or whatever said that the radiation levels were nominal so maybe it's but dissipated you know, he, yeah, but he'd lived there. He a lived long in time. it. Yeah, I know. I know. Maybe That's... maybe whiskey is the natural. Oh, whiskey is the natural. Yeah, against radioactivity. You know, is the antidote. I love that. <laughs> I gotta give me some yeah, of that yeah. shit. But uh, but also, oh, I think that, uh, and this, I was saying this to Jason and Allie after the movie too. Like this whole question of how do cyborgs reproduce. And mm-hmm. is that going to be the singularity instead of the intelligence singularity? Is it going to be when the machines learn how to replicate themselves and this idea yeah. that nature always finds a way? And and I was saying to Jason, like, I'm almost so tired of th- this is such a, a omnipresent theme in science fiction. Yeah. I was almost a little disappointed. That's like, oh, really? We're going to do this story again? Yeah, this is still right. here. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, whatever. That's that's fine. I still really enjoyed the movie. But yeah, so so Staline is this combination of we're not really sure what, we're not really sure how that humanity came about, but she's certainly not 100% real human in our old-fashioned no. sense of the word. So And yet, so there's this built-in paradox here where she's unreal, but her real memories make the best memories. And, uh, you know, she doesn't even have a real life because she's living inside this mm. bubble full of holograms. And yet, for some reason, her memories have more potency the whole business and it's again it's not trying to land on one side or not right it's just trying to muddy the waters which which is right does, so. yeah absolutely all right so I, i'm i'm you know what guys i want to close this out right here uh, i want this <laughs> to be our discussion episode but there's one thing that i want to put uh forward is that i'd like to redo another episode on blade runner 2049 when it actually comes out on home video and we've actually had time to really go through everything that's there. You mean, do you mean uh, a soft reboot of our, of our episode? Is that what a, uh, <laughs> yeah, a remake of our Blade Runner 2049. Uh, oh, the final cut, right. <laughs> Damn it, that's Let's so good. Do, uh, <laughs> I love that, man. There you go. You know, and we could actually go back and listen to it, pick apart what we had. 
and then apply it again to the film with proper research like we normally do like atlantic sc is known to do is bring research to it <laughs> this one was our hot take episode on yeah Blade this Runner. is the real table talk episode hey right on yeah, <laughs> yeah there go. very cool so shall we close this out sir let's do it man all right i want to thank jason and carrie for coming on the show uh, i always appreciate all the information that you guys bring because it's always stuff food for thought is the theme that Blade Runner goes into. That's right. And I love having you guys on to talk about the science fiction stuff, but you guys are invited again to come on our final cut of the Blade Runner 2049 whenever we get it on home video. So, any last thoughts that you guys want to plug before we head out? Let's make some, let's make, let's make this movie make some money. Let's make yeah. this movie make some money. Come on. Let's go. What a noble suggestion. It's getting, I looked this morning, it has uh, an 86 and an 83% respectively on Rotten Tomatoes, which ain't bad. Like I said before, you know, it's for such a um, artsy movie and a movie that's intentionally yeah. slow and artsy. Yep. I, th- I think that one could argue that really it is a success. I it hope is. it's a success. Yeah, I well, it's a success in my books, but I hope that it's commercially successful enough that they do come back and do a uh, um, a sequel. Because oh, I would love it. In thirty years? Well, no, they no, they need to do it in two years. (laughs) Yeah, like next year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that would be really cool. Right, maybe they could have Harrison Ford come back as a hologram. It would be great. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. God. Now he's, now he's yeah. one of those faded sex icons. <laughs> they can put him as Very a hologram cool. up next to Elvis. I'd be okay with that. There you go. Yeah, yeah. He'll, in, in, in the, Indiana Jones garb. That would be great. <laughs> that would be so meta. Oh, man, that would be really good, man. You know, you have Han Solo, and you realize, oh, he was a replicant all along. Oh, Look. my God. Yeah. <laughs> that would be very cool. All right, cool. <laughs> well, we've, we've given them all the ideas lately. Right. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to echo exactly what you guys said. Go see the movie. Okay, throw yourselves a curveball is what we usually talk about. It is. It's a slow-paced film, but god damn it those images really stick with you I, I love the fact that Jason brought up Kubrick a little bit earlier where yeah. you're like yeah definitely I can see yeah. what you're talking about yeah. because Kubrick did take his time shout outs to everyone who's been tuning in thank you so much Lee uh, yes so yes once again thanks to our guests uh, if you want to check out my review it's at www.bigpicturereviews.co.uk so and I, I kind of delve into exactly some of the shit that we've been talking about especially on identity so that's probably worth reading uh, you can also see me on twitter at all one word the twitter handle is at lee paul brady we're still kind of talking about that at the moment uh as we were talking about the the, the weinstein thing i've been posting a lot of shit in relation to that yeah. and retweeting some of the more focal voices about it because it's a shit show that needs fixed yes. so uh and any any little any little help i can do on that part is absolutely necessary for, you, for all of us yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so no, that's not me tooting the horn. That's me saying everybody should be on that cause. So that's that's that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so absolutely. Uh, so anybody on Twitter, if you're listening to this and you're doing that, I mean, this cannot be dropped. Let's keep going. Let's yeah. see him get uh, some jail time instead of oh, I just got fired <laughs> and now I'm in counseling. That would be great. Yeah, yeah really. Absolutely. Yeah. Two tier justice system. Yeah. So that's that's everything from me. Uh, if you if you want to give Jason, if you want to give a shout out to where people can find you uh, at J. Uh, Bullier at uh, Twitter. Uh, there's also uh, Facebook, Instagram, etc., etc. But uh, yeah, mostly Twitter. Cool. I'm Carrie. I'm at Carrie Linland, so it's at C A R R I E L Y N N L A N D. Cool. Cool. Yep. Check those people out because they are smart, and we've had them on the show a couple of times, and they've always been great guests. Uh, and obviously you want to keep in the loop on the lead up to our final cut so that's the way to do it (laughs) absolutely 
My name is Jason Michael. You, you can follow the show on Twitter at AtlanticSC and you can follow me at my new Twitter handle at Jason B. Michael. Please go give our Facebook page a like, follow that as well, and our Instagram. All right, so that's it for us this week. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks I appreciate the feedback we got on our mother episode. That's it for us. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Wise men say only fools.